I look at my own career journey and I didn't realize as early as I could have how, how much collaboration of working well with others was important. So I think I did okay, but if I'd have learned some of those, some of those lessons about not just, not just being really good technically, also being good at interacting with others, like that's the piece that is the differentiator. You're listening to Cloud Security Reinvented, a podcast for security leaders with a focus on the cloud. Learn best practices from fellow security professionals and how they disconnect from it all at the end of the day. Cloud Security Reinvented. Good morning, or depending on when you are in the world, good afternoon, good evening, or good night. Welcome to Cloud Security Reinvented. I'm your host, Andy Ellis. Before I introduce our guest for the week, a quick word from our sponsor, Orca Security. Orca provides agentless security and compliance for your public cloud infrastructure, enabling you to detect and prioritize security risks in minutes, not months. I'm here today with Andy Steingrubel, CSO at Pinterest. Welcome, Andy. Good morning. Nice to see you. Great to see you. you know, thanks for joining us. You know, across a security career, we as professionals hopefully grow. And the world that we're in changes. And today I'd like to get some of your insight, especially in light of the transition from the on-premise world that many of us started our careers in to the world of cloud that has become the default model for most IT infrastructure. But first, for some context, let's chat a little bit about your career journey. I think you started in Unix Systems Administration first at the University of Chicago and then Abbott Labs. Yeah, I uh, guess I, I graduated with a degree in philosophy, but when I didn't when I pay well, at, yeah, I realized that probably wasn't my future, but I learned to program when I was nine. So I had the computer bug from an early age and I found that I had a, I had a job at the university as a student taking care of a bunch of Unix systems in a lab. And I realized mm -hmm. that was where I was spending all my time. It's a, you know, a bit of advice people have given me is you, you can tell what you're passionate about by where you choose to spend your time, not what you think you're interested in, but what you're actually interested in based on how you how you spend your time. So I, I took on Unix admin at the university for several years and then later at a, at a big giant farm. And while you were at the farm, I think is where you transitioned into security as a full-time role. Yeah. Although I, I tell people like when you're, when you're a Unix person at a university, two thirds of your job is security because the, the actual users of your system, or at least back when I did it, the users of your system are actually sometimes the hostiles trying to get more disk space, trying to abuse things, their students and, and tinkering around. And so I learned a heck of a lot of security principles and practices there from one of my mentors, Bob Bartlett, who's an awesome guy who just let me sit in his office and learn and, you know, learn how to secure Unix systems in an automated way. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty awesome to have that, you know, mentorship and availability. And then when you, when you pivot from the university to a pharma, what's that transition like? They pay you more, but the, uh, but you know, at the university, we were resource starved. And so we mm -hmm. had some stuff to, to tinker around with. You had to be way more creative uh, around getting everything out of the, the stuff you had on the other side, moving to the, to a pharma meant lots more stuff and variety you had to take care of infinitely larger budgets, but mm -hmm. you know, not the same security bar, but I, I sort of worked my way into being responsible for security as well. And it was, you know, you've got something entirely different at stake. Then, you know, at the university was people's email and, and compute time for the most part, at least for, for what I did at a pharma, it was, you know, actual drugs under discovery, like real stuff that could be stolen. And that would be really bad if it was so. 
Yeah. So, so from there, you then moved to CCC Information Services. So that sounds like not big pharma. Yeah, not big pharma. Yeah, it was a it was a, a small company that had a little startup uh, that was trying to move insurance claims processing for the auto industry for that or for that business for auto claims online. So we yep. did a just startup for a little bit, and then it got pulled into the parent company. But I took that job as their first security person, a uh, mm-hmm. dedicated security person at a at a little startup, and then took that over for the for the whole company. It was a couple thousand person company at the time, so you know, mm-hmm. reasonably big. Yeah, and I think at that time, the idea that we would do sensitive transactions like that over the internet was still relatively novel. Yeah, it was 2001, so it's still, yeah, still early days of, of all that. But then I think you went to serious hardcore transitions over the internet transactions when you moved to PayPal. Yeah, in 2006, I wanted to wanted to change, move to the West Coast, a little different scenery than a bit of a more, more uh, I don't know, a few more mountains than, than in Chicago. But uh, yeah, took, I was one of the first people hired to, to build out PayPal's dedicated security team. It had been mm-hmm. brought into eBay and then was splitting out. So they had a new CSO and he was building a team and took on every th- possible thing in security over the course of my, my 12 years there. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think we first met when you were at PayPal and I think that was the place where you went from like, nobody knew you existed to everybody knew you existed to everybody wanted to take you out. If you recall operation payback. Yeah. Yeah. That was, a. Uh... It was an interesting time. You know, I, yeah. I don't, you know, sort of who knew who you were. I, I tell people I was no smarter on my first day at PayPal than I'd been on my last day at CCC. But now when I, when I would send somebody an email, they'd respond to it, you know? And so it was a pretty interesting job in terms of what we were protecting and how, what mm-hmm. kind of target we were. I went, I went years where every talk at a conference was f- slide one. Here's the title of the talk. Slide two. Here's this giant security problem we found in some b- bit of the internet. Slide three, here's how that works against PayPal. So that was, that was my life for a number of years. That, that sounds pretty relevant. And so now you're at Pinterest, which I think equally large, interesting, challenging problems, but what's that pivot been like from, you know, financial transactions to a core social media platform? I tell people the hardest part of my job, like at PayPal, it's not that my job wasn't hard. Figuring out what amount of security you wanted to have was relatively straightforward because you had a lot of attackers. You, yeah, all of it. I mean, yeah, we, I didn't think nation states were particularly my, my enemy at the time. And this was several right. years ago when I, when I left, but certainly big organized crime groups and, and so on. But at Pinterest, the bigger challenge is more like, what is the security threat? Like, where do we want to, to put that bar? Uh, mm-hmm. because there's real tangible trade-offs between velocity and and security in in my current environment so figuring out what the right amount is 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 the biggest challenge of the job i don't mean in a bad way just that there's a lot of of back and forth on where do we all communally as a leadership team think is the right place to to set that bar yeah no that i think that's the thing we we often all struggle with is you know how do we how do we pick that so as you think about now all of those transitions in the context of cloud Right. How do you think that security for you has changed as cloud became more prevalent? Yeah, it, it, the example I, I usually pull out is, you know, so I was an on-prem guy and I remember doing vulnerability management. And it used to be that we would, you know, buy some bit of vuln scanning uh, stuff to put inside our own environment. Because yep. when you, one, the network access required for it was pretty scary. But two, 
like vulnerabilities are really serious, right? Who wants other people to know about your vulnerabilities? And so, <laughs> so Qualys comes out with a product where they, where they say like, we're going to do this vuln scanning thing, but from the cloud and you, you put it up on our website. And I remember like being freaked out about that. Like, oh my gosh, you're crazy. I'm not going to do that. That's, that's really crazy, sensitive stuff to the, to the new world where gosh, if you don't have to do it yourself, in most cases, you probably don't want to. And in many cases, we tell people, gosh, like, don't do it yourself. Like, don't run your own mail system. Like, pay somebody else to do that. It's just too mm -hmm. big a pain in the butt with too many risks. Like, that's really sensitive stuff, but don't keep that in-house. You're not going to do it as well as you can pay somebody else like Google or Microsoft to do it for you. And I think that that's a fascinating because you're right. I remember when Qualys first came out and I was like, this, this company's going nowhere. Who's ever going to trust you know, their yeah. data? Yeah. And that, you know, I, I, and so it was an adjustment, I think. And, and now mm -hmm. it's, it's like, now the big issue is trying to come up with policies for yourself of what stuff do you need to have your arms tight around and, you know, and what are the principles or how do you set the right security bar? for an outsourced vendor that's going to have access to your to your stuff or provide some key business function how do you assess them and what's the what's the right security but it's no longer a you know, we're, we're long past the i'm not putting some of my really sensitive stuff in the cloud you use workday yep. you use google for mail you, you you know and so on so so as we look at your your industry you know i suspect there's a lot of folks out there who think they know what cloud security looks like what your day job is like from the outside and I'm probably one of them. Yeah. So tell me how I'm wrong. Like what's different in your industry than what I might think looking at it from the outside? I mean, I, I'm not sure. I guess it's a little bit industry specific. I mean, you, you dealt with lots of traffic. Yep. So, you know, maybe you're not my best, my best foil for That's this fair. question, but it was a big adjustment when I got to, to PayPal back, back when to just realize, like, if you've been working at a lot of businesses that aren't internet scale businesses, you really just don't understand traffic volumes and the kind of torture testing that you put systems through. And, and even PayPal from a, like I compare it like PayPal and eBay. We used to talk sometimes about the difference in, in volume, but you don't, you don't visit PayPal and browse and browse and browse browse items. Like you go there at the end of a thing when you decide to pet, or maybe you want to go check your balance, but it's, you know, it's the traffic volume difference between a business that has a browse and interaction component to just a pure, uh, you know, transaction piece is, is way different. And so at Pinterest, like the, the biggest surprise I suppose is how much complexity, uh, is under the covers that I think a lot of people don't understand. Like when, when you open the app, it's deliberately built with a beautiful interface to, to show you the stuff you're looking for and get you inspired. But what, what's behind the scenes, making that happen is an incredible amount of machinery involved, both, both offline and in real time to to show you the results. And there's a huge amount of data volume involved in doing that, that probably people don't know. Yeah. How big is, what does big data mean to you? Many, many, many petabytes, uh, okay. up to exabytes in some cases. Yeah. So we're, I love asking that question. Yeah. Cause I have, I've had, would have vendors who came to me when I was at Akamai and they'd say, oh, we're a big data vendor. And I'd say, what does big data mean in your world? Cause like my telemetry database is 23 billion rows that update every 10 seconds yeah. and they would just sit there and be like, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we, I think 
given given our transaction patterns, and I don't, I can't quote the numbers off off my head. It's too mm-hmm. bad I, I didn't get my prep from my my colleague Dave or David. But uh, we create and destroy more data in S three every day at Amazon than most companies actually keep there. So so that that's the that's the volume we're doing there. So yep. how, how do we actually process in a day is more than most people actually even have in storage. So. I think that that's fascinating. I think that's just dealing with the security around that volume of transactions. Like how do you scale to that, that pace is interesting. Yeah. There's a lot of segmentation. It's, you know, in a fast moving business, you, you want everybody to, to create lots of data really quickly. Instrumentation, Mm -hmm. for example, telemetry from your apps, how, how are people using it so you can then analyze it, but you, you need to be careful that like the basic click profile isn't all that interesting. You click this thing, you click that thing. That's not really sensitive, but there are bits of it when you go to do certain things or maybe search queries. Search queries are more sensitive yes. than just what things you looked at because they show way more intent and there and so on. So you, you do have to, you know, you don't apply fine grained controls to each different type of data. You try to separate them so you can apply those controls at the correct level. Okay. Uh, that's really interesting. So speaking of fine-grained controls and applying controls, so if you look at the practices that you first learned in your career in the pre-cloud era, like which of those industry standard practices most resonates for you today as something that we need to make sure we keep investing in? Yeah, it's, it's funny the things I uh, that you sort of take for granted in some cases. An, a sort of basic internet firewall in your production environment that's your edge where you can you can police data ingress and egress reasonably well and have mm-hmm. an actual policy about it is is one of those undervalued things when a new tech comes along you know I, I mean look look at your firewall logs and i guarantee you or, or some sort of edge logs that you have and you're still going to see uh sql slammer and, and yes. code red, like there are still systems on the internet sending out probes for 15 year old and 20 year old security vulnerabilities. And if, if you happened to have a system that was vulnerable to that, it's going to get popped, uh, by that because that, that attack traffic is still out there. So being able to have some declared security policy and be able to enforce it consistently, like forget the technology for a second. It's an incredibly valuable thing to have some, some bits of certainty about your environment. And mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you don't have to secure all the other stuff and the perimeter is dead and, and yada, yada. But if you didn't have some of that, that ingress filtering, uh, and certain amounts of egress filtering, your life would be a lot worse. So, right. Right. So it's almost gone from a, a primary control. It's almost a pre-primary, like we used to rely on them and now we just need them to exist so that we can worry about other things. Yeah. And, and you know, they may not actually every day really because attacks have moved on, they may not be protecting you against stuff. I don't know, like Jeremiah Grossman and I get into it occasionally and other people who talk about the death of the firewall, but it's like attackers have moved on because everybody got a firewall. Like if everybody got rid of them and all hosts were just on the internet again, opening up whatever ports they had open, if attackers haven't forgotten or, or wouldn't just go back to directly attacking things, like the reason attacks have moved on is that everybody put in place those, those security controls. So You'd say on any day, maybe they're not stopping much, but that's because everybody knows you have one and they're not bothering to go, to go poke that stuff anymore. Right. And it may be that the firewall has changed from being a network device to almost a, a device centric security control. Like every system has an onboard firewall at this point. Yeah. But you'd be surprised in an, you know, in an enterprise, how many, how many times like you turn some of that stuff off 
because you, you know, especially if you have a lot of engineers using devices and, and you want to give them some flexibility to install things, then so, I mean, that, that's one of the things, you know, back to your question of what, what don't you know, I suppose is that a lot of internet businesses, as opposed to, to maybe in the financial sector or something where everything is application whitelisting and nobody has admin rights and nobody can do anything like good luck. Like it's a war for talent and I can't, I can't hire engineers. Uh, to work here who wouldn't have some amount of autonomy in choosing the tools right. that use. And that that's a big difference between, you know, some of us in the in the in Silicon Valley or in, in high tech businesses and other folks, I suppose. Yep. No, I've definitely encountered that one. So if we look at the the practices that were good, then there's the practices that aren't really relevant anymore. So is there a, an industry norm that you think we ought to have just buried a long time ago? Uh. You know, I'm not sure where to, where to put it as a norm, but like phishing testing is, is testing employees for phishing is the one that, that a group of us have been railing against just yep. how silly it is. I think Bob Lurick's probably the loudest person on it. And, and it's awesome that he is because way more people follow Bob on Twitter than follow me. So, uh, <laughs> he's got a better voice for, for pushing that, but the, yeah, doing phishing testing is one of those, you know, testing employees for, for phishing is one of the things that just drives me crazy when there's a technical solution you can roll out. Like I helped yep. my team and I helped build Fido back when I was at, at PayPal, like this technology now exists. You can now deploy it to everybody and you can pretty much entirely prevent this problem. And so rather than having a sort of soft squishy control that relies on humans, you can implement technology that essentially perfectly solves it for you or against, against at least most issues. And so do that. Stop, yeah. stop doing these other fuzzy things when you can, when you can deploy a, a, a definitive control to stop an attack. Yeah. I think, well, first of all, I think people often forget that we train our employees to click links. Yeah. Like you can't get paid without it. Yeah. It, what, what's a quote suspicious link? Like there used to be right. a great site that was a suspicious link shortener and it would, it would, it would take a, a perfectly innocuous page and turn it into oh, a link that looked bad. That one. Yeah. So it was like, oh, that link looks bad and this link looks good. Like, really? Like the days of drive by downloads and don't click on a link. Like, yeah. okay, if you're, if, if, if you're being attacked by the NSO group, great. Yes. Be insanely careful about what text messages you get and open and so on. But that's not most of us. That's not the world most of us live in. Yep. And I think for me, the, the eye opener around phishing testing was I worked with a vendor once who said to me, he was talking about your metrics. He says, well, what, what percentage of your users do you want to have click on a link? And I looked at him. I'm like, that, that was an, that's an odd phrasing. He's like, no, no, no. You pick the percentage and we'll craft the message that will get that percentage. Yeah. I mean, it, we did some studies, guy who used to work for me, Trent Adams, who's one of the, the brains behind DMARC. And, and so it did some great great studies with some folks to look at what click-through rates look like. And like the best you can get is to maybe you can get yourself to 4%, but great. Then that, if you've got a big employee base, 4% is going to get you owed. That's, that's going to get your, that's going to get some number of employees compromised. And if that's what you're relying on for your security, you're going to have a problem. So yep. come up with a better way of doing. It. So as you look at, you know, the cloud era. For you, what do you think has been sort of that biggest surprise or the biggest growth driver that if you told yourself 20 years ago, this is what it was, your 20 year old, 20 years ago, you decided, ah, I don't believe. I know the, the big surprise, like a, a surprise to me is that, you know, DevOps is great, but we moved to like, some of that desire to move to that model has also moved away from, I started as a sysadmin, so I've got a, mm -hmm. a lot of passion around 
deep, deep systems knowledge. And the, the, the blessing and the curse of the cloud is that because you can deploy so many resources to a problem, sometimes you don't get as fixed on or as, as focused on how much is it costing you? Or is mm-hmm. this actually the best way to use the, the technology? Because it, it sort of seems infinitely free. It's not really, cause, but for a lot of, you know, a lot of engineers don't actually see the bill come in. So that, right. that, that's a really interesting perspective is how we've pushed around some of the work. Like the work doesn't go away. It either doesn't get done or people are doing it who aren't specialized at it. And the same can happen with security and, and so on, where you, you let everybody be responsible for, for certain kinds of rules instead of letting a few people try to set a definitive posture like that, that firewall. And I'm, not, I'm not suggesting it's the exact right model, but it, having some things you can have certainty around is actually really nice. And we've moved away from that, and it's, it's, it's hard to function in that world. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting point. I think we often talk about like these great things, but yeah, that uncertainty that's almost from the, the removal of the friction that the bureaucracy used to have, but that friction had these positive things. If you had certainty that like you knew what you had bought because it required finance to get involved. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and so you could put a lot of those controls in, but this is my, this is my sort of the interesting thing that the cloud potentially gives you an option to do is to start unifying a bunch of your systems and network security policies into one, mm-hmm. one sort of policy that says these things are allowed to talk to these things, whether it's a host, a container, uh, uh, some, you know, I don't know, some serverless thing, a Lambda or something. What, what's the policy for it? And theoretically, we're getting to a world where you can define all of that comprehensively rather than in silos. And that, that starts to become really powerful in this world. So it, there, there are definitely some, some pros as well. Yeah. So if you had to look back and there's a piece of advice that you learned that you wish somebody had given to you earlier in your career, what's that advice? Well, it seems simple, but it's all about people. Like I don't, I, I look at my own career journey and I didn't realize a, as early as I could have how, what, how much collaboration and working well with others was important. So mm-hmm. I think I did okay. But if I'd have learned some of those, some of those lessons about not just, not just being really good technically, also being good at interacting with others, like that's the piece that is the differentiator as you try to, as you try to move upwards in your career. It's not just the technical stuff because it pretty soon you, you outgrow problems you can solve all by yourself. And, and once you outgrow problems, you can solve all by yourself that, that you need to collaborate with others on, then how well you can do that is really important. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's something I don't think I learned early enough. People, some people listening are like, wow, did did you ever learn that? I don't know. I think so. I think at least more than I used to. So, and that, that's probably the biggest thing. So I, I try to, to coach younger engineers on, you know, the differentiator as you go up in level is less about your technical acumen and more about how well you can work with others to get things done. Yeah, I'll add for you. There's the advanced skill even past that because I'm I'm writing a book on leadership and I literally have a chapter about this specific thing, which is at some point you outgrow the problems that the people that you talk to can solve, and that's when you need to learn the process skills for how do you (laughs) convince an organization to keep moving even when you can't pay attention to them anymore. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, asking questions is one of the things that I've you know, let other people work on solving problems and come up yep. with, with systems for that. Cause you're like getting way more people involved in solving the problem rather than leading that, that yourself exactly. uh, is really important. And so I've gotten a little better at over time of 
sort of hopefully leading people or pointing out through through questions that there is a problem and how how can people themselves get motivated to go to go yep. tackle it. It sounds like you're building a good process there to, <laughs> to get the people going. So yeah. as you look at the future, what opportunities about technology that it's going to bring, what are you most excited about? Ooh, yeah. I mean, in, in the purely security space, I think that unification of, uh, trying to unify things into, into simpler policies that we can have we can go back to having a de- sort of a declarative security policy. I spent a lot of my, my career over the last 10 years of trying to figure out on the web. We helped do CSP and some of these other things. We did DMARC. I'm a big fan of protocols and having declarative security policies, not things that are enforced by code, but things yep. that you can, you can look at a, a policy and, and reason about it. And right now those are all siloed, but in, in the cloud and with some of the work that that each of them is doing. I'm most familiar with Amazon because that's where, where we are. And they're starting to unify some of that together. And there's third parties that plug in, but we're, we're starting to get back to a point where you can, you'd sort of have a declared, declared security policy. These are the things that are allowed to do these things yep. and any deviations from that either aren't allowed or you can spot them, uh, really easily. So attacker traffic becomes obvious because this system shouldn't be making outbound connections. But right now that's, that's the level of minutia and detail, and you can't write that at a high level. So that that's maybe one of them. And then the the other one is like slowly but surely we're moving. Lots more people are man, are moving to managed code and programming languages that make it harder to make mistakes, or at least some of the security mistakes of the past. So so like that that's going to be a pretty foundational change as well. I think at least in security of taking the burden off of of lots of folks and eliminating a whole bunch of, of attack surface. So I'm pretty excited every time I see a project that starts up somewhere and we're going to do it in rust. And I'm like, woohoo, that's awesome. Let's do, <laughs> let's do more of that and less, less things in, in C and C plus so. plus. So security is a stressful job. What do you do to unwind? I'm an avid cyclist, uh, bicycle, uh, rider. So I mm-hmm. try to ride four or five times a week and I usually tell people when you're, when you're climbing a really big hill, like we're, it's really nice here in California. I've got lots of, lots of hills around it. When you're, when you spend 45 minutes or an hour climbing a hill solid and, and, and you're mostly just trying to pedal hard enough and, and breathe enough that you don't keel over and, and fall over, that you don't lose momentum. You can't really think about anything else. So it's, it's both, I like doing it. And it also is a great way to clear my head because I can't think about anything other than that those next couple of feet I'm going or getting to that post up, up ahead or that tree or whatever. It's, you know, hard exercise uh, is the, is the thing I like. Yeah. Uh, normally people are like, oh, I just love the cruising. I like the, it forces you to clear your mind by sort of oxygen starving you. Yeah. At, well, you just, you can't think about anything else. Like when you're working really, really hard, like there's just no time for other thoughts to creep in other than, hey, how many more feet is it to the top? No, I totally get that. When, when I was running a little more frequently, I would count my paces. That's how I would keep track of how far I'd gone was how many footsteps I'd done. Yeah. It's really hard to think about any other problem when you're counting and oxygen deprived. Yeah. Yeah. When you're staring down at that, the heart rate meter and it says it's like 175 and yeah. you're like, all right, how long can we let that go uh, before we have to stop? <laughs> so, yep. So some free form, we've been talking a lot about technology and security. So. But what's a piece of life advice or wisdom that you have that you'd want to share with our listeners? 
You know, my daughter is just about to graduate high school and I've been. Congratulations. Been, yeah. Thanks. And she's just signed up to go to the University of Washington. So we're pretty excited about that. But I talked to so many people about it. They're like, oh, that's really far from home. And how are you going to deal with that? And, you know, it's hard. Like it is, you, you know, you've had your kid like 18 years and now they're not going to be there anymore. But you know, we had a great, we went to a great parenting class one time when she was really little. Your whole life is rate and of being a parent is raising your kid to, to move away from you. Like that's, that's the goal is turning them into a successful adult. And yep. like, that's the goal. So whether if they're happy along the way and everybody had a great time, super consider yourself lucky, but your goal is a, is a, is a happy, is a successful adult who hopefully yep. doesn't live with you and so on, you know, is, is successful and, and can, can stand on their own two feet and, and so on. And obviously that's not everybody's situation, but like, that's your, that's sort of your general goal. And so your whole life is giving them all of those skills. And sometimes it's uncomfortable to do that. But that's your, that's what you're doing. So it's like, maybe it applies to other bits in life. It's like, what is it we're really trying to achieve here? And like, there may be some bumps along the way, but if you can see what it is you're actually trying to achieve, then sometimes the temporary pain or the little setbacks or whatever, as long as you're going in that right direction, you can feel like you're, you're doing the right thing. So, yeah. And I think it does directly apply to management. Like your whole goal as a manager is to develop people. So they leave. Yeah. Like hopefully inside your business to a better job, but sometimes somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it's a funny spot about security is like the most security teams are far smaller than the other engineering teams. And so there's mm -hmm. very much more an up and out thing that happens in security, uh, in many firms. Cause like when I wanted to, I was at PayPal, I wanted a CISO job. Well, PayPal already had a CISO. Like I, unless he left, like I, that's fine. So then my next job was outside and, and that happens you know, that happens in, in legal departments. And so and not always with engineers, right? Sometimes it's all work on this other problem or that yep. the org is growing or whatnot. So it, in security, you do have to get used to the fact that you're building people. And if you, if, if people see that you're growing and developing talent, then, then when somebody leaves, that's another feather in your cap that you prepared them for that opportunity. And somebody, somebody earlier in their career or, or, or such will come join your team because they think that's a great place to build skills and learn yep. stuff. Uh, and so on. So hopefully it's a, a bit of a flywheel uh, effect for that. And and I, I really enjoy it. So I've had lots of colleagues who have gone on to, to other things and and some of my team has, has done the same. So Yeah. Well, Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Happy to, happy to do it. You've been listening to the Cloud Security Reinvented podcast. I'm your host, Andy Ellis. And I hope you have a lovely day. Thank you for checking out this episode of Cloud Security Reinvented. Brought to you by Orca Security. Orca Security detects and prioritizes cloud security risks for AWS, Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud without the gaps in coverage, alert fatigue, and operational costs of agents. Please follow Cloud Security Reinvented wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or visit orca.security slash podcast to get immediate access to all of the latest episodes.